ready? I was born ready. Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. This is David French with Sarah Isger. And we've got some really non-controversial, boring topics today, Sarah. Um, Maybe not. (laughs) Maybe not, yeah. So we're going to dive into, uh, a number of readers have, or listeners, I'm sorry, have have written into us and asked us to talk about the Equality Act. So we're going to talk about the Equality Act. I've written about it on my newsletter, The French Press, that you can find at thedispatch.com. So we're going to talk about the Equality Act. And we're also going to talk about the Voting Rights Act. So there's nothing like a uh, anti-discrimination law and voting rights to really uh, get the public square energized, Sarah. So that is what we're going to talk about today. Two big topics. Um, so as you say, let's dive right in. And let me begin on the non-discrimination context by I'm going to make. Um, very briefly, my case against aspects of the Equality Act, and I'd love to hear your reaction to it, because we've actually not talked about this. We have not, Sarah and I have not talked about the Equality Act, so I, I'm, this is, uh, this is going to be fun, because we're going to be coming in fresh to it. All right, so here, if, if I had to lay out my fundamental concern with the Equality Act, it would center around its breadth. And and by its breadth, here's what I mean. There is a concept um, in non-discrimination law, uh, a word in non-discrimination law in my, in, my, uh, in my piece, my French press piece that I honed in on, and that word is invidious. As a general matter, the intent of non-discrimination law isn't to eliminate all forms of discrimination on the basis of a protected char- characteristic, but to eliminate invidious discrimination. And invidious discrimination has, it's a, it's a legal term of art that means, and invidious generally means a classification that is arbitrary, irrational, and not reasonably related to a legitimate purpose. So what does this mean in practice? So let, let's, let's look at, for example, sex discrimination. Um, hostile environment, sexual harassment. We talked about hostile environment harassment in a previous advisory opinions podcast. That is um, an example of invidious discrimination. When an employer refuses to hire a female workers because they, quote, might get pregnant, that would be invidious discrimination. Quid pro quo sexual harassment, where people are coerced into trading, for example, sex for promotions or pay raises. Again, invidious discrimination. And there's a broad degree of public support and very robust doctrine prohibiting invidious discrimination. However, not all forms of sex discrimination or sex distinctions, if you want to use a different word, are unlawful or should be unlawful. For example, we don't have sex-blind athletics. We have male athletics and uh, athletics for women and, you know, and in, in the education context, in one sense, you, you would read the relevant statute and you'd say, wait, can you really do that? Can you really separate, um, out, uh, uh, gender in that way? But 
Actually, you can. And in fact, it has been mandated under Title IX of the Education Act of 1972 to maintain quite robust, um, distinct women's sports. So, for example, that's an example example of a distinction that is not unlawful or invidious discrimination. Okay, but that is a background. Sarah, here is my one of my issues with the Equality, Equality Act, and we'll get to uh, an, another one later. But let's just deal with this first one. I agree, and I am fine with a non-discrimination law that bans invidious discrimination against trans employees, students, etc., in the same way that a sex discrimination law bans invidious discrimination on the basis of sex. So in other words, if somebody's working in an insurance agency and they say, we don't, we're just not going to hire you because you're a trans woman or a trans man. We're just not going to hire you. No matter how good you are at selling insurance, we're not going to hire you. I think that's invidious discrimination. It's a completely appropriate sphere for non-discrimination law. But the way the Equality Act is written, because what it in essence does is it takes, uh, by adding in a, um, a definition of, of gender identity that essentially says a, a trans woman is a woman or a trans girl is a girl, that what you're going to end up with are circumstances, maybe not super common, um, not super common, but circumstances where you're going to have biological distinctions that matter that can't be recognized by the law. And I'm thinking, for example, of athletics, um, that there are irreducible biological distinctions between men and women that won't be able to be recognized by the law. Now, I don't, I'm not someone who says that the Equality Act will destroy women's sports. I mean, I think that's hyperbole. The NCAA has had a trans athlete policy since 2011, and it has robust women's sports. But there are circumstances where there are biological distinctions. Another one is, for example, a, a locker room or a showers where somebody who has, you know, if, if a person is exposed to male genitalia against their will, you should have a, there should be a problem with that. So in that circumstance, the, I think my issue is that the, the act extends just beyond invidious discrimination and into areas where distinctions are necessary and important. That's, fa- that's phase one. I filibustered for a while. Sarah, your thoughts? So first of all, and most importantly, listeners need to know that the Supreme Court website is down and I am angrily rage refreshing <laughs> the Supreme Court's website <laughs> to get the transcript from the Voting Rights Act case. Not, I mean, I already listened to it. I've already read it. Um, so like part of my brain and heart and emotional energy is doing that right now. That's just important to know about like, <laughs> you're what's, sidetracked by refreshing it's, what's happening in my life. Um, yes. So I think it's really, you and I did not discuss this ahead of time. You have approached the question in a fundamentally different way than I approached it in my head. So that's interesting right off the bat. Um, uh, so I guess I want to push you on your your way that you approach this, and then I want to talk about my way. But let me push you on your way first. Okay. Uh, baked in to your view of this is this idea. Uh, let's take the sports example for a second. I have always found the men and women sports thing to be a little bit weird. Uh, really? I I but weird because it's not 
obvious what the right answer is either. I don't mean weird as in like, oh, we should only have one sports competition, but more like, huh, how are we doing this? And I listened to this very interesting podcast. If you guys are not listeners to Radio Lab and you're sort of with me on the like science nerdery, uh, Radio Lab is just a fantastic podcast that I love listening to. But they had a series, um, a little mini series within the podcast called Gonads. <laughs> and it came with music, like special music just for the Gonad series. I feel like several of y'all have listened to this and I'm going to get lots of like, yeah, the Gonad music. It was awesome. Um, Within the Gonad series, there was one on this distinction between male and female sports. And the reason for it was that actually we have never come up with a perfect definition of what a female is versus what a male is. You know, and this uses the Olympics to sort of dive into that because the Olympics still doesn't have a perfect definition. They use testosterone levels now. But we know that is not actually what defines a man or a woman. They've just said that if you have over a certain amount of testosterone, you just can't compete against the women, even if you're, quote unquote, a woman. Um, They try the chromosome test. That has problems with it. There's, you know, no, uh, no way to take all the humans on the planet and sort them into male and female based on any test that we currently have. And so, David, given that, I guess I'll throw it back to you. If we don't have a way to sort every single person into these two categories, why do we want these two categories under law? Well, because the two categories still apply to, say, 9,999 out of 10,000 people. Okay, but that's not what the law is about. The law is not just about fairness to the majority. It's about fairness to the individual. And you're just chucking that one person out and saying, well, they can be discriminated under law. No, 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 no. Non-discrimination law is based on groups. It's uh, groups and individuals. Um, I don't think I necessarily agree with that. The non-discrimination law is there to protect the individual. Whether it is based on group identity or something is fine, but that's not, we don't do laws by group. We have do we do laws we do laws by protected characteristics that protect individuals and group and collections of individuals. So uh, Title IX, you know, that's one of the distinctions between say we, when we when we talk about, for example, civil rights law versus civil liberties law. Civil liberties law is something that is has traditionally been much more focused on individual liberty, and civil rights laws ba- has long been based on. Um, protection of historically marginalized groups of individuals. Correct. So but there the person is a suing and the person whose rights being protected are the individual. Right. You often have standing of a, an individual. You also often have class action standing. And then one of the things that you see in civil rights law that you often don't see in civil liberties law is you see an entire, an enormous amount of evidence that is based on group treatment. That's based on group treatment. So what do what happens with this? And, and we're going to get into this in the Voting Rights Act, right? What happens to this category of people under this particular legal regime? And that's an enormous part of evidence in litigation in civil in civil rights litigation. So yeah, I mean, I I think that what it's entirely appropriate to have a legal distinction that applies and and is easy and clear and fundamentally easy to understand. 
in all but a tiny, tiny fraction of circumstances. And in that tiny fraction of circumstances, there is a, um, there is a necessity for perhaps special procedures, but you know, so would you use let's the just testosterone be honest test? Would you use the chromosome test? Would you use, uh, some other DNA based test? I was, I would say as a general rule, you would use a chromosomal test, but Again, the issue with that, that's, that's sweeping way beyond the Equality Act. That's sweeping way beyond the Equality Act because the Equality Act doesn't deal with that at all. Um, that, that's not what the Equality Act deals with at all. Now, I do agree that there are a certain very small number of people who are born with unique biological circumstances that, um, for which definitions are difficult. However, that's not our circumstance. That's not what this law is about. But Michael Phelps was born with unique genetic differences that make him flipping unbeatable in a pool. We still let him compete. I'm playing devil's right. advocate here a little bit and also a little not. Uh, I know, but you know, th- but it's not what the Equality Act's about. Okay, so that's, uh, I agree. Um, <laughs> I thought that your way of approaching it was interesting because yours is more of a philosophical approach. So I was going to meet you on your philosophical territory, but- uh, you're, I approached it more from like the Equality Act. So the Equality Act is expanding the 1964 Civil Rights Act. At its most basic, what it's doing is adding discrimination on the be- basis of sexual orientation and gender identity into those protected classes, which as we know, and as listeners who uh, were with us over the summer know, that's exactly what Bostock, the Supreme Court opinion did. It added uh, uh, sexual orientation and gender identity and a Title VII under sex. This would remove it from sex and make them their own categories. I'm interested if you think that alone uh, has any effect. If that were the only thing the Equality Act did. Is the Equality Act necessary to codify Bostock? I don't think it's necessary to codify Bostock, but Bostock was only Title VII. Correct. Now, in theory, you know, uh, Title Nine, it, the same, much of the same reasoning would apply to Title Nine, uh, but, but yes, uh, I don't, I don't think the Equality Act is necessary to codify Bostock. I think it goes beyond Bostock in some interesting ways. Okay, so then let's talk about where it goes beyond. So it adds uh, public accommodation anti-discrimination laws. That's what's going to affect your florists and your bakers. These other cases that we've had come up. Um, I'm interested what you think about that, but that, of course, alone is not the issue because it does one other thing that affects that, which is that it says that it trumps uh, RIFRAs. So the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act passed in 1993, and there's all these state RIFRAs. I mean, this would, this would, I'm actually, I'm going to phrase this as a question because I am less certain of this. Does this just gut RIFRA? Is RIFRA a dead letter at that point? No, I, there is no. So RIFRA has not been applied to deal with non-discrimination law very much at all. So in other words, so non-discrimination law has existed alongside RIFRA since the beginning of RIFRA. Title seven, title nine, title six, uh, public accommodation laws, all of those have, have existed alongside of RIFRA. So in in some ways, this feels like it's sort of a gratuitous shot at RIFRA um, because the fact of the matter is that RIFRA has not been used to frustrate the purposes of federal non-discrimination law. And in fact, even pre-Smith, 
federal uh, the 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 free exercise clause was not um, the free exercise clause was swept aside for those people who tried to assert a religious justification for invidious racial discrimination. For example, in the Newman v. P- Piggy Park case, that was a case where a person denied service to black customers at a barbecue restaurant and claimed that he had a religious justification for doing so. And this was under the pre-Smith, very much, much heightened, uh, much uh, greater scrutiny for uh, actions deemed to infringe upon religious liberty. And the Supreme Court just basically said, and the quote was, patently frivolous, patently frivolous, which is why you have not seen a successful invocation of, and I am having a hard time thinking of a single case where you would have a secular employer saying, look, we just don't hire people. We don't hire women. We don't hire people of a different race or we don't hire gay people. And we have a RIFRA right not to and go pound sand. And I just haven't seen that. I'm not saying there isn't a district court case bouncing around somewhere, but uh, RIFRA has long existed side by side with very, very robust federal enforcement. But the public accommodation part. Now, the public accommodation part, again, most of it is not problematic, um, in my view. Most of it is not problematic. The Many states have broader. So you even don't think broader. that the, the cake baking cases, the florist cases, come out differently by law, if you have a non-discrimination public accommodation that applies to sexual orientation and that explicitly says RIFRA cannot be used to defeat this non-discrimination and public accommodation law? Yeah, no, because those cases, those cases are not based there. What they are is they're, they are First Amendment cases based on compelled expression. They're not cases where they're saying that for example, Jack Phillips had no policy that said, I don't serve gay customers. Or uh, Baronel, um, oh gosh, why am I blanking on her last name? Uh, Baronel Stutzman, I think. No, I was Arlen, Arlene's, Arlene's Flowers. Flowers. Yeah. Arlene's Flowers. Baronel had no policy that says, I don't do arrangements for gay customers. Both of them served gay customers happily. Their policy was, I don't use my artistic talents to celebrate any event that I find objectionable, whether it deals with LGBT issues or doesn't. Like Jack Phillips has a history of refusing to to custom design cakes that had messages he didn't like, regardless of, you know, so there was, this was, these cases were First Amendment cases, compelled expression cases by and large. So So that's an excellent point. Do you think any of the drafters of this law know that? No, <laughs> they're clearly trying to get to these cases and you're right that they don't. Um, so no. let's talk about the politics real quick. Uh, this actually, this law versions of it, at least has bounced around the Hill for, for a few years now. This isn't the first time it's come up, but it has passed the house. It will go to the Senate. There are, it appears to be, there are 50 votes in the Senate with Manchin and Cinema sort of praising the bill. There's definitely not 60 votes. No. What uh, what are the politics of blowing up the filibuster over the Equality Act? <laughs> I do not think that Manchin or... Uh, I, let me put it this way. And I was actually talking to somebody yesterday who is very much in the know on the 
dynamics of the Equality Act on the Hill. And essentially, let's put it like this. One of the reasons why Manchin and Cinema have come out against blowing up the filibuster is it prevents them from having to come out against Bill A, B, C, D, E, F, G that they would otherwise be against and depart from some of their... Now, I think Cinema probably would vote for the Equality Act. Um, but just as a general matter, one of the reasons why Manchin and Cinema are saying, I'm not blowing up the, the filibuster is because it, it gets them out of this thing where they have to say, have to cast a vote against Democratic, uh, against policies supported by the great weight of the Democratic public and the great weight of the Democratic Party. They can just say, look, for I support the filibuster and we're going to need the filibuster at another time. And so it sort of punts all of that. And so I think that Manchin, for example, could pay lip service to the Equality Act, but I don't think there's a chance in heck that he votes to ditch the filibuster to preserve the Equality Act or to, to pass the Equality Act. So what's interesting to me is when you look at these quotes from various Republicans, various conservative organizations, uh, very few of them are making your gender point. Most of them are making right. the religious liberty point. One wonders whether perhaps you should go brief the senators that that is not a particularly important objection. You know, <laughs> what's really interesting to me, and I've written about this and have gotten a ton of incoming about this, is that religious liberty protections, aside from RIFRA, are very robust right now. They're very robust. Now, they're not as robust as they would be if Smith was overturned, but right now Smith has been... You couldn't help I, you get know, that I one get, in. You had to, I, get I had to get it in. Yeah. I had to get it in. Uh, but Smith right now is like tottering around as like a zombie doctrine in some really interesting ways. Because even when the court is applying Smith, it's applying Smith in a, in a very interesting way. So, for example, the, the church reopening cases uh, really are arguments about two different versions of Smith. One version advanced by like Kagan and others is, wait a minute, okay. If you're looking at at other similar, what we're going to do is we're going to look at other similarly situated entities subject to regulation, meaning other places where there's an audience and an auditorium, like movie theaters, performances, things like that. And if they're being treated the same, then the churches lose. Whereas the court, the majority of the court is basically saying, hey, we're looking at basically anywhere that people gather. It could be an auto repair shop. It could be like a subway platform. It could be a restaurant, et cetera. And if churches are treating, being treated worse, well, then the church wins. And so what that means is, you know, that, that you know, what is the standard for neutrality is a big question about the neutral law of general applicability uh, that, that works in the Smith context. And the way I look at it is between the enhancement of free speech law the enhancement of freedom of association, the chipping away at Smith, the likely though not certain outcome of a case we talked about before, this Fulton versus City of Philadelphia case where Philadelphia took action against Catholic charities for refusing to, uh, um, uh, gosh, the exact thing that, that the Catholic charities did, essentially endorse same-sex couples for adoption or foster care. Um, the likely outcome of that means that 
even without RIFRA, on all of the core religious liberty concerns, or most of the core religious liberty concerns that someone would have as a result of the Equality Act are going to be protected by Supreme Court precedent. Now, some of that would mean that people have to file suits and there would have to be lawsuits that would be that need to be uh, litigated to establish all of that. But the precedent is very robust. But that's something you don't say in conservative politics, because the message in conservative politics is our religious liberty is about to collapse now and forever. And and what another thing that a lot of people don't realize is in huge sections of the country, people have already been living under versions of the Equality Act and have enjoyed robust religious liberty protections and still enjoy robust religious liberty protections. So my issue with the Equality Act is not that this is some sort of like death star against religious liberty. My issue with the Equality Act is that it's overbroad. It's overbroad. It sweeps too far. Um, Not that it's like some sort of, you know, guided missile into the heart of uh, worship in the United States of America. Well, just so you know, the Supreme Court website is not back up, but I think we've had a good and robust conversation about the Equality Act. I want to, again, commend to y'all the Radio Lab Gonads podcast. Uh, David, I'm going to commend it to you as well because you picked the chromosome test and it is quite possible to be an XXXX chromosome, to be an XXY or a YXX and be perfectly healthy maybe have fertility issues, maybe not even have fertility issues. And every uh, national and international sports competition that I'm aware of ditched the chromosome test, you know, shortly after the Cold War. Um, So that's fun. Also, for those who are like, but Sarah, isn't there more? Yes, there is. So there's this (laughs) great book called Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. It has very little to do with the definition of women. I would say, if anything, it's kind of a turfy book that's uh, trans-exclusionary radical feminism. The idea that uh, trans women are not, like, should should be their own category, but not in sort of uh, this traditional feminism. Um, anyway, it has some amazing statistics. And if you're interested in gender politics at all, I thought it was, uh, I was annoyed with it at first in like the first chapter or two. And then the data alone just like threw me back in my chair that, uh, you know, as I was pregnant while I was reading it and as a pregnant woman, knowing how little anyone gives a crap about my safety in cars and airbags and seatbelts, um, that like, they don't care at all. But as a woman, (laughs) they don't test female crash test dummies. All the crash test dummies are men. Um, so the, by the chromosomal test or (laughs) by, um, I have not tested the chromosomes of any crash test dummies. So I feel (laughs) like I am not an expert. Um, but you know, fascinating when you look at the statistics on injuries in car crashes and deaths in car crashes, that they tend to be um, harder on females than males. And that's because the cars are designed for men. That's just one example, but it was my favorite. Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men by Caroline Criado Perez. Okay. Yes. Well, well, no, before we love all Oh, I don't get the last word? Cool. By all you don't means. get the last. La- no, no, no. This is just you with one, your chromosomes one little tweet. can have a different no. word. <laughs> Just to, so I have two questions for you. Yeah. No, one question and then a comment. Okay. How do you pronounce 
B-O-N-A-F-I-D-E. Oh, <laughs> I pronounce it, uh, actually, it kind of depends on the context. Um, bonafide, or uh, if I'm talking about someone's bona fides. Like, that's a okay. bonafide Picasso, or David has some real bona fides on bad takes. <laughs> bona fides on deep takes on superhero <laughs> movies. But, um, okay, so you you and I are aligned on the pronunciation. That's now we'll concerning. Talk for, Maybe I need to rethink mine. We'll talk further about the dispatch later. Yeah, this but, is good. Um, so... There's a concept in in non-discrimination law, uh, not involving race, uh, because there's it's incredibly difficult to think of a single kind of racial dis- meaningful racial distinction that isn't rooted in invidious uh, discrimination. But in race, religion, I mean, in religion, national origin, et cetera, sex discrimination, there's a concept called bona fide occupational qualification, which is a very narrow kind of exemption to sex discrimination law where if there's a really compelling need for somebody of an in, of a given sex to have the particular job then you can make these kinds of sex distinctions one of the historic circumstances in uh is a 1970-something supreme court case involving male prison guards guard a jobs rever- reserved for men when you're talking about contact positions with other men in male prisons, just to take an example. And one of the things that I think about the Equality Act is that one of the problems is it eliminates it by, by essentially saying that a person of who's a trans woman is a woman or a trans man is a man, it has a big impact on these bona fide occupational qualifications. And I think that the act could be there could be uh, a concept introduced into the act that preserves the bona fide occupational qualification in limited, limited circumstances where biological distinctions are, in fact, meaningful, such as exposure to genitalia uh, or athletics. So I don't think that you have to throw the, everything out in the non-discrimination regime with the Equality Act to deal with many of the most common and rational objections to it. I think there should be a process of legislative compromise, um, but I don't I, think we'll see such a process. Uh, uh, no, but... Um you might win me over on a portion of that. So I have a couple footnotes. One, I think if there is a, um, I'm going to use the military, which I know does not actually count in this, but it's the best sort of easiest example. Uh, If you need to be able to do 20 pull-ups in five minutes or whatever it is to be a XYZ in the military, then I don't see why it should matter whether you're a male or a female. I don't understand why it's 10 pull-ups for a woman and 20 for a man. Um, or why if a woman, why if the, you know, if the rule is that it's 20 pull-ups, why it matters whether you're a man or a woman, if you can do 20 pull-ups. So I would want to, uh, I think what your example is in the prison guard thing is different. It's not based on physical characteristics. It's actually based on something kind of different than that. Uh, certainly in the female prison guard to female prisoner category. Right. Strip searching type, you know, that yeah. kind of, yeah. I do think that's different because there uh, has been such a prevalence of violence in prisons perpetrated by prison guards, perpetrated by prisoners. It's that uh, I I see an interesting point that you're making there. Um, on the 
bathroom question, which you have not technically said, but you have you have skirted around it. <laughs> um, I am so sick of the bathroom conversation. Here's what I'm willing to compromise on. If you want to stand at a urinal, by all means, we will have urinals over there. Otherwise, we're going to have single person stalls and you may go into them as you see fit. I don't know what we do about stadiums. I haven't figured that one out yet. But in restaurants, you know, a lot of them at this point have that. There's, you know, if you want to go into a urinal room, it's over here. Uh, if you have a child with you and you want to go into the family one that's just for you, basically, it's here. And there's like some single rooms over here. Um, I don't like peeing next to anyone as a general matter. Their genitalia is uh, <laughs> perhaps relevant to me, but certainly the going to the bathroom aspect of it <laughs> doesn't make relevant. it particularly relevant. <laughs> I take the point about violence that some people have made. I think some people genuinely have that fear. I would say that you're already like in a restaurant or a club or something like I, uh, I might not go to places where the fear of violence is that bad when the door, like when you're in a room with someone. Um, but like peeing next to someone is already weird. Uh, and I, David, I don't know as a man, what your bathroom experiences are, but as a woman, you're always sort of in a closed little room peeing next to someone. Um, and it's always, it's always weird. Well, <laughs> uh, yeah, there, it's a variety of experiences, Sarah, although it's moving ever closer to everyone's in a stall. I mean, yeah. I think that that's sort of, especially in, I think it's super weird. Like the urinal trough thing. Yeah. Like I, as I went to <laughs> the, the most memorable example of that, I didn't, I didn't know the uh, podcast was veering in towards the urinal trough. Uh, but the most memorable example of that was I went to Belmont, the racing, uh, the Belmont racetrack, horse racetrack in New York trough, man, big, big trough. So that's why I chose my words carefully. I said exposure to genitalia. I did not say bathrooms because not all bathrooms. In fact, unless you're standing in a line of, of guys, there's just. That's it, that's actually not something that really tends to occur in a women's restroom. No, a women's if, restroom if I'm exposed is, to genitalia in the women's restroom, something has gone horribly wrong. Yeah, something's terribly wrong. So that's why I use <laughs> that term. And that's much more related to things like this weird uh, weird case out of, ca of Canada where a person who is a, a trans woman but biologically intact uh, male genitalia was demanding that his genitals be waxed by a female. And she didn't want to wax his male genitals. And so the Canadian that was ultimately dismissed and was, you know, wild sort of fringe case. So that's why I talk about the, um, that's why I talk about exposure to genitalia as opposed to quote unquote bathrooms. And because not a lot of bathrooms and actually like how bathrooms are moving more towards sort of privacy as a principle within yes. the bathroom. Yes. I am not. So I'm not a talker. I don't go to the bathroom with my ladies and have conversations while we're doing things. <laughs> um, if I'm, I'll go to the bathroom with my ladies and we'll sit there and like powder our noses, fake, you know, lip gloss type stuff. Uh, and we'll talk at the sinks if we need to discuss our dates. But, um, 
but no. And, and for what it's worth, I am the same way in my own home. Uh, lots of you have laughed at me previously when I've mentioned this, but we are a closed bathroom door family and everyone was like, wait till you give birth. Ah, uh, ah, uh, uh, my friends, the rule has not changed. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think the closed bathroom door home away, wherever that's a great, that's a great life policy. It's a good rule. Okay. So <laughs> the Supreme court website is just down. Luckily, uh, we have notes. We've already listened to it. Uh, did you listen or read this time, David? I read. So I listened. So that'll be fun. Although again, I wish we had- it's up. It's no, up. no, you've got it. Yes. <gasps> In I the got nick it. of time. That's incredible. Thank you. U S Supreme court. Just for us. Just for us. Okay. So on Tuesday, the Supreme Court heard arguments in Arizona versus Brnovich. I mean, this is going to be uh, probably one or two with the Fulton case this term. I don't want to say that like for sure. We do have the ACA case as well. There's a few hit parades coming. But uh, in terms of what sort of the media is most interested in, what's going to get like the most dishonest headlines, Uh, it's going to be a race to the finish between this Voting Rights Act case and the Fulton case that you mentioned earlier. So they heard arguments on Tuesday. Four people argued, so it was extra long, extra crispy. And what Arizona did is it passed two laws about voting. So one is that if you vote out of precinct, your vote doesn't count. Now, in some states, if you vote out of precinct with a provisional ballot and they found that you voted in the wrong precinct, what they're going to do is count your vote for president and for Senate. Uh, Maybe even if you're in the wrong precinct, you have the correct names on your congressional district ballot, for instance. And then they're not going to count all the names below that that are for your judicial precinct that are very precinct specific. But in some states, if you vote in the wrong precinct and you vote in a provisional ballot and it turns out you weren't in the right precinct, your vote doesn't count. So Arizona previously uh, was a, we'll count the rest of it. And then they passed a law saying, nope, we're not counting any of it. Second, uh, an anti-ballot harvesting statute. So previously, Arizona had a law that said, if you fraudulently harvest someone's ballot, that's a no-no. They've changed it to anytime you take someone's ballot and you are not their relative, guardian, stuff like that, um, that's now a crime. Uh, lots of states have laws like this. Uh, don't quote me on this. I think it's 18 have anti-ballot harvesting laws. And I will use and an define, example. Define ballot harvesting. So that's most commonly where um, a Democratic or a Republican operative will go to a nursing home and say, uh, if everyone has their absentee ballots, if you'll fill them out, this way you don't have to go drop it in the post box. I'll take it for you. Um, to either a ballot drop-off location. Different states have different rules over what's allowed. Some states, for instance, you're only allowed to take five ballots at a time. Other states, there's no limits, like in California. So it will depend state by state. But, um, you know, the way that this most often happens in reality is that, you know, you and your roommate uh, both get your absentee ballots on the same day and your roommate takes your absentee ballot and his to wherever he's going to drop off his ballot, be it a post box or the ballot drop-off box at the voting location. Um, 
Now, if you do that, your chances of getting caught and prosecuted for ballot harvesting are zero. But <laughs> technically, that would be ballot harvesting. Um, what they're trying to get at are these paid operatives from either party who do this. And there is sort of a incentive for pressure, for fraud. The Carter Baker Commission, this was Jimmy Carter and James Baker, they had a commission on voting laws that they recommended to states. Anti-ballot harvesting was among them. So Jimmy Carter right. thinks ballot harvesting, uh, anti-ballot harvesting laws are a good thing. Here's one way in which they've been used, I think, to the good. In North Carolina in 2018, I've mentioned this case several times, but a Republican congressional campaign manager was found with, I'll get the number slightly wrong, but 1,000 ballots. North Carolina has an anti-ballot harvesting law. They actually couldn't prove that he had committed fraud with any of those ballots because he still had them. Now, what I'll guarantee he was doing was he was picking up ballots from a place he knew was opposed to his candidate. He was going to harvest them all, tell people that he was going to turn them in, and then he was going to throw them all in the trash. Hmm. That's really hard to prosecute because you'd have to catch him on video basically throwing these ballots in the trash. Right. So instead, if you have an anti-ballot harvesting law and you catch him with a thousand ballots, now he's already committed the crime. You don't need to prove right. that he was going to throw them in the trash, that he turned them in, et cetera. Um, it's sort of this prophylactic against fraud. He was convicted. The election was actually thrown out and they redid the election in 2019. So that's an example where anti-ballot harvesting laws uh, worked to the good and what the Baker, the Carter Baker Commission was talking about. So that's what Arizona passed. Okay, so why are we here? Why hasn't this come up before? Um, there's a few things. States used to have to go through something called preclearance. States that had had any history of discriminatory voting practices the preclearance requirement was pretty much thrown out in a case called Shelby v. Holder a few years back. And so we're out of the preclearance world. And something they said in Shelby v. Holder is you can still sue if they pass a discriminatory law. Uh, and so lo and behold, Arizona passes these laws and um, the Democratic Party is like, cool, well, you gave us an invitation, Supreme Court, and here we are. Um, I think it is fascinating. Just like, let's start at the 30,000 foot level. These are not what you would generally consider to be discriminatory laws. Anti-ballot harvesting, a law that, you know, close to half of states already have. And precinct mandated voting, a system that almost every state has where you need to go vote in your precinct to varying degrees, perhaps, but nevertheless. Um, so the idea, like, if you... <laughs> If the Supreme Court were to hold, for instance, that mandating precincts was racially discriminatory, we would have to get rid of precincts around the country. Now, that's not what's going to happen for a variety of reasons, but that's why I think on its face, so many people saw this lawsuit and were like, that's the ground you want to fight on? That's kind of weird. <laughs> so here's why we're fighting on this ground. One, they wanted their best example of changes in the law. They needed... Uh, for, for their purposes, a statistical disparity of how it affected minority voters and white voters. And then three, they wanted to find uh, what David has said here of invidious intent 
um, in the clearest way that they could. And the drafter of this bill said some, I mean, bad stuff. Um, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically what he said was, you know, Latinos in my area are grabbing all these ballots and we need to stop it or something like that. Something that clearly involved race and ballot harvesting. And he tied the two together. And um, so what they want from the Supreme Court is not actually about these two laws. Nobody thinks these two laws are falling. It'll probably be 8-1. It might be 9-0, although I think Sotomayor like, has flown the coop on this one. So my money's on 8-1 that the two laws stand. The question is all about what the test is. Why do these two laws make it? And what can they do to then sue in Pennsylvania, in Georgia, on those laws and have the test already in place that they can meet? Um, also, they brought this in a 6-3 court. They know that these laws are going to stand. There is right. also a little bit of Citizens united stuff happening here, where this will be a rallying cry, potentially, of, um, see, we need to pack the court. I don't know that that will work out particularly well if they lose Breyer and Kagan, which they might, a little hard to say what test is going to get adopted based on the oral argument. So... Let me tell you the buckets of the different tests that we could have, David. Okay. One. Oh, also, just before we dive into this, um, we've talked before about how there are like these great oral arguments and the justices are on their game and the advocates are on their game and like, dear law students, listen to this if you want to see how it's done. That is not what I'm going to say about this oral argument. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Students? perhaps go listen to this argument on some how not to's. I actually usually for myself find that more helpful in life and experience because it's really hard to imitate everything that someone does right. It's much easier for me to pick out what someone does wrong and say like, aha, I'm not going to do that. Um, So if you want to listen to a not great argument, let me invite you to this place. Why was it not great? Because of these four buckets that I'm going to talk to you about. Uh, Well, let me just quote Justice Kagan. (laughs) Ms. Amundsen, the longer this argument goes on, the less clear I am as to how the party's standards differ. This is three quarters of the way through the oral argument. Not good. Um, And then Ms. Amundsen, I will argue, flim flams around, to quote my mother. Um, Still not really distinguishing her test from the opposing party's test. (laughs) Okay, buckets. One, in their brief, at least, the Arizona Republican Party said that their bucket was any time, place, and manner restrictions are per se valid, basically. You don't Mm -hmm. even get to the court under the Voting Rights Act. Now, they changed that opinion at oral argument. We'll get to that when we talk about the oral argument, perhaps. Uh, That's one bucket that if you're just affecting where you vote, the time you vote, whether you can vote by mail or something like that's time, place and manner. And it's per se not racially discriminatory. Okay, we'll get to why that's kind of bonkers and definitely not going to be the test the court adopts. (laughs) There's a totality of the circumstances which is basically, there is no test. There never will be a test. We're just going to look at these laws and we're going to quote our feelings about the laws. And uh, Arizona can have an anti-balloting 
law that is racially discriminatory and North Carolina can have one that's just fine. It's just the totality of the circumstances. Uh, No doubt if that were the test they adopt, which I don't think it will be, uh, you know, Justice Breyer would have a 17-point balancing test to determine the totality of the circumstances. Number three. Sounds like the uh, sounds like the Lang v. California test you think is going to happen going back to previous AO. Just yeah. Let's just look at what the officer, which is case by case. Yeah. You know, let's just see what see what they're thinking, see what was going on, and we'll we'll make it up. Yeah, it's basically when the Supreme Court can't come up with something better. They're like, well, it's case by case. And it gives no guidance to the lower courts whatsoever. And then a lot more of these cases end up at the Supreme Court until the Supreme Court gets cranky about it and comes up with a test a few years later. Right. They know this, so they're not going to want to do it. All right. So bucket number three. Uh, Substantial disparate impact. So here you're going to look at data. But there's a question over which data you're going to look at. What percentages count? How much is substantial? Uh, So you have that number one. And number two, that the law in question is the but-for or maybe proximate cause of that substantial impact, substantial disparate impact. And bucket number four, by the way, I think that we, uh, that one's one's a definite possibility, bucket number three, some version of that. Uh, Bucket number four is actually not a Voting Rights Act bucket. It is not the Section 2 bucket at all. It's the Anderson Burdick bucket. It's a constitutional bucket. And it is the undue burden bucket. And this is the bucket in which, if it's an undue burden on the right to vote, it don't matter whether it's racially discriminatory or anything else, it's not okay. Uh, Not a single person in oral argument argued for this bucket. I am bringing up this bucket. And before we go on further, I should mention that, uh, as I have to do so many times in these, my husband wrote a amicus brief at the cert stage in this case. So there, he wrote it on behalf of um, some U.S. senators, some Republican U.S. senators. Uh, He and I, though, have had uh, a few hours of conversation about this. And let's just say, like, maybe we're not on the same page. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, David. I would love to be a, a, a fly on the wall for those conversations. We have, I mean, I just think so many people would be like, yes, these are the two-hour legal nerd conversations we think that they have, but they're so much nerdier. He got like mad, not really mad, but kind of cranky <laughs> at me last night when I, I'll, I'll bring up what I, what I brought up to him at some point. It's the, it's the Barrett argument that I found uh, kind of persuasive and he maybe didn't. <laughs> okay. So what do you think of the oral argument? What do you think about those buckets? What stuck out to you, et cetera? Uh, well, I think that the, that, yeah, I mean, you went through exactly, I thought you did a great job outlining what was really at issue here. And I think the, the, the real key here is in my view is this, is this bucket three, because it seems as if if you're going to talk about sort of outside of the 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 kind of bright line, clear, hey, we have um, what we're doing right here is on is prima facie racial discrimination. Um, and if you're going to look at disparate impact at all, some version of bucket three seems to be almost inevitable. Um, some version of it. And, and what was, but what was striking to me about the oral argument is that 
even if you had some degree of some degree of consensus, maybe sort of around bucket three, how little that actually answers yep. still. Yep. I thought we were going to go into this argument with everyone kind of in a bucket three place. And then we were just going to hash out where in bucket three, how much of a substantial burden is it um, in other statutes uh, or in other statutes and in other parts of the law. When we talk about disparate impact, um, the uh, EEOC, for instance, has had a four fifths rule. It needs to be 80%. And uh, yeah, there's different ways to like how, which, what you divide into what, but let's just 80% rule. Here we had either a 1% or a 0.1% disparity. Right. <laughs> right. And now to say, okay, is that a meaningful disparity or not a meaningful disparity? Some of the races that, for example, decided the 2020 presidential election were really close. We're really, really close. And I think one of the interesting things about a lot of voting reform is what you're talking about is trying to sort of technocratically engineer these margins, like making some sort of chipping away at so-and-so's base here and chipping away at so-and-so's base there. And so the, the fact that you have this sort of small percentage kind of is in fact the point of the law <laughs> often. And so, the, but then the question is, even if it is the point of the law, is this also a racial issue or is this a partisan issue? Because things like partisan gerrymandering are quite lawful, quite lawful. So how do you distinguish between partisan gerrymandering and a racial gerrymander when race and partisanship overlap dramatically? Yes, although... I will argue here that the interests in gerrymandering are very different than the interest in voting and where one yes. might justify partisan gerrymandering. I don't know that we should be justifying partisan voting laws where you're passing a voting law for the purpose of uh, disenfranchising someone because of their political beliefs. Uh, right. it's, we don't need to totally go down the gerrymandering route and I'm not even justifying partisan gerrymandering, really. It's more that it's hard not to have partisan gerrymandering. It's not hard to not have partisan voting burdens, though. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yes, there's some question over whether race versus, you know, partisanship comes into this. Um, so let's go to the law real quick. We haven't talked about the law. Yes. And I'll start with Justice Sotomayor's question. Remember what I said? This was a not great oral argument on all sides. Justice Sotomayor to uh, Michael Carvin, who's representing the Republican Party of Arizona. Counsel, you, this is her first question, so if it sounds hostile, it started that way. Counsel, <laughs> you keep talking about equal opportunity, but I don't see it anywhere in the statute. Aren't you rewriting Section 2? You keep saying repeatedly that it prohibits giving or providing an unequal opportunity to vote. But the language is very clear. It focuses on the effects of government action, not the government action in a vacuum. It says no voting qualification or practice can, quote, result in a denial or abridgment of the right to vote on account of race. So, Mr. Carvin, yes, Justice Sotomayor, where do you get equal opportunity from in that language, Mr. Carvin? In two places. One is we, it's not a denial at a time, place, and manner, so it needs Justice Sotomayor. Excuse me, sir, Mr. Carvin, to be written, Justice Sotomayor. Excuse me, if you can't vote between blah, blah, and then it goes on. So, like, her question gets dropped. 
it's really weird. Because if you go to the Voting Rights Act, and everyone can do this at home, can follow along, and you do, uh, you know, pull down the little edit bar and do a find function for equal opportunity, you will find, here it is, all eligible American voters, regardless of race, race, ethnicity, disability, the language they speak, or the resources of the community in which they live, should have an equal opportunity to cast a vote and to have that vote counted. And we're going to go down to another part. Um, this is like the goals that this commission, for instance, which is uh, not maybe a section two-ish interest, but... Uh, you know, we want it to be non-discriminatory and afford each registered and eligible voter an equal opportunity to vote and to have that vote counted. We don't need to read all of Section 2 because this kind of gets to the heart of it. Yeah, well, and, and it says in Section 2 itself, a violation of subsection A is established if based on the totality of the circumstances, it is shown that the political processes leading to nomination or election in the state or political subdivision are not equally open to participation by members of a class of citizens protected by subsection A. So there are equality, explicit equality provisions laden throughout. So then we get to what that, that's where they thought they were going to argue this time, place, and manner thing. As long as everyone has the ability to vote between uh, 10 and 10, 15, that's fine. Because it's equal opportunity to vote during that time <laughs> Regardless of the fact that we know in Arizona that non-white voters can't really go vote during that time because they're more likely to have blue-collar jobs or something to that effect. And so Kagan, I thought, did the best job of getting to this. And by the way, if you're listening to this and you're going to argue a case before the Supreme Court, in your moot, someone needs to play Justice Kagan and do this because she is doing this to a lot of advocates, especially now in the oral argument by telephone game. And I don't understand why so many advocates seem unprepared. Uh, you'll remember this line of questioning from last term, David. It's very effective. Uh, Mr. Carvin, I have a number of hypotheticals for you. I'd like to answer them yes or no, she basically says. The first one, the state decides that each county can have one polling place. And because of who lives in larger counties, that creates a disparate impact. Black voters have to wait in line for 10 times the amount of time that white voters do two and a half hours instead of 15 minutes. Is that system equally open? So one polling place per county. Obviously on its face, that is race neutral. Uh, her next hypothetical. The state decides it's going to get rid of Sunday voting. This is of course relevant because that's what Georgia has sort of done. They've said you can vote on Saturday or Sunday, allowing counties to get rid of Sunday voting. A state decides that it's going to get rid of Sunday voting on those two weeks of early voting, leaves everything else in place. Uh, it is found that black voters vote on Sunday 10 times more than white voters. Is that equal opportunity? Here's her next one. The state says we're placing all our polling places at country clubs. I mean, that one, we don't even need to go by that's, uh, but it's equal opportunity. It's also, that's, that one seemed a little less interesting to me. This one though, the state says we're going to have election day voting only, and it's going to be from nine to five. And there's plenty of evidence from the record that uh, one of the races are 10 times more likely to work a job that wouldn't allow them to vote during that time. And then, of course, you go from, okay, what if it's 10 to 3? What if it was 9 to 9, but then they change it from 9 to 7 p.m.? Um, and you can still show some effect. 
but the polls right. are open till 7 p.m. Anyway, you get pretty quickly to why I think the time, place, and manner bucket doesn't work. Because some of these are just time, place, and manner changes that clearly have uh, such a discriminatory effect that it doesn't matter sort of why they were there in the first place. But David, here's my interesting question that perhaps my husband didn't agree with. Um, <laughs> I'm. This is what I've been waiting for, Sarah. <laughs> Let's take that first example where there's one polling place per county. And so the some of the counties have a very dense population in urban areas. They tend to be more non-white. And some of the counties have uh, a much more rural population. They tend to be more white. So you wait 15 minutes in one county if you're white, and you wait two and a half hours in one county if you're black. But, David, I am a, like, the black population is motivated to vote. You're not going to, they know what's happening here. They know why you did mm-hmm. this. And they right. I've run ads about it. They're trying to take away your vote. They don't want you to wait in line. And so you know what? Everyone is motivated and they go wait the two and a half hours, all of them. And so when you look at the impact, there is none. There is no disparate impact. Surely then that substantial burden test doesn't work. It can't just be what the impact is because then you're punishing these minority groups for overcoming the hurdles that have been put in place. Right. Something about that seems really off to me. Yeah. Well, it seems off to me as well. And this is the, you know, this is, there is an interesting question here that arises. And that is, when do you, when is it that you crack open a law and you actually dive into what the drafters say about it? Which is so dangerous, because in this case, like Justice Thomas was asking, okay, one legislator says it's because of race, and I want to discriminate against people because of race. And another legislator says, um, well, actually, you know, I want to discriminate against white people. And then another legislator says, well, actually, um, you know, me and these 10 people, we really have, you know, evidence that this is going to prevent fraud, and we want to prevent fraud. Right. And, And 90 people voted for it. So you have... 12 people's reasons why they voted for it. You have another 68. You don't know why they voted for it. And the reasons that the 12 voted for it are different from one another. How do you use legislative intent? (laughs) I know. It's incredibly, incredibly difficult to do it. And that's why these cases, you just outlined why these cases are actually difficult. They're actually quite difficult is that you're looking at, Law now. I, one thing that I do think is easy is the time, place, and manner distinction got demolished, <laughs> which is why he kind of abandoned it in the argument. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it got demolished, and you know, like, um, th- th- this is a good exchange. Um, this is Justice Barrett. Okay, but then I'd understand why you conceded. Oh, let me back up just for a second. So as I understand from your brief, your position is that Section 2 does not apply to the how, to the time, place, and manner restrictions as long as they're facially neutral, and it's only about the who. Am I right about that? Mr. Carvin, qualifications would deny people the opportunity to vote. Time, place, and manner do not deny anybody the opportunity to vote. They're simply providing opportunity to Justice Barrett. Okay, 
But then I don't understand why you conceded in your examples to Justice Kagan that some of these time, place, and manner restrictions, like time, place, and manner, you can only vote at a country club or time, place, and manner, you know that this is a placement of the polls and they're going to be placed in areas that are burdensome to minorities. Aren't those time, place, and manner restrictions? Mr. Carvin, but they're not neutral because they don't give minorities the same opportunities to access the precincts as given to whites. In other words, if you put all your precincts at country clubs, the notion that minorities have the same opportunity to vote is, is laughable. It is okay. laughable. Laughable. Right, right. There's a lot laughable there. Yeah. So, look, th- these are these are difficult cases, and I can I tell you what I think is going to be ultimately kind of the standard here? Okay. It's a different bucket. Okay. It's a little bit different bucket. And it, I'm going to call it the outlier standard. Mm. So this was brought if up you by, have, uh, this is Robert's point. If you have 20 states that have ballot, that ban ballot harvesting, if you have X number of states, like this is, these are normal and conventional, difficult to draw ballot access rules or, or, you know, voting rules, they're going to be okay. Even if you can show one legislature here, let legislator here said something awful, or one legislator there said something awful, or there's a 1% or a 0.1% variation that when it's within that sort of realm of normality, uh, either the law itself or its application in the particular circumstance and and the reason why I add that second part is, well, what if what if there are some interesting quirks in a jurisdiction, such as it was brought up, for example, on Native American reservations in Arizona, there are circumstances that don't really hold in a lot of other parts of the U.S. I was just going to bring and, those up. So the argument on the ballot harvesting was particularly interesting because their argument is they don't have postal service on the reservation and their car ownership is quite low. And so every single person on the registration uh, sorry, on the reservation, would need to separately drive their ballots in instead of just everyone handing their ballot to Bob and Bob driving everyone's ballot in. And that uh, this is unique to Arizona as opposed to North Carolina. Right. And that that's where, so that's where I think outlier law or outlier circumstance may ultimately end up being sort of the de facto test here is it, that would be my only addition to your to your, but it would be phrased within one of the buckets. It would be phrased within the. It would be essentially the outcome of the way the court interprets your bucket three. Is my is my prediction? Yeah, you could have the substantial disparate impact and but for cause, plus some like <laughs> outliery stuff happening. Um, yeah, I think the undue burden stuff will come up because. Uh, for instance, saying that there's one precinct per county is an undue burden on the right to vote if you have to wait three hours if you're in an urban county. So I think for all yes. of Kagan's hypotheticals, you can get to those through the Anderson Burdick undue burden test, and you don't need Section 2. I'm surprised no one said that. Um, and that doesn't mean that there couldn't be racially discriminatory laws. I'm not saying Section 2 is dead letter, but that what we're talking about in those hypotheticals is an undue burden. And so you don't even need section two yet. Section two is a higher threshold. Those actually don't even meet the first threshold, the constitutional threshold, let alone the statutory threshold. So let's talk justices. You and I are talking about this 333 court. Mm-hmm. And I 
I have become more attached to it since we first talked about it. That doesn't mean that all the opinions are going to be right. Um, three, 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 but it means that when you see all of these concurrences come out, those are like some of the, the fault lines that are going to be assumed. And then we're going to see some justices move on or off their tectonic plate onto someone else's tectonic plate. So, um, it, you know, it was pretty clear in the oral argument, Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch were certainly still on a shared tectonic plate of sorts. Mm -hmm. Uh, that tectonic plate is something like substantial disparate impact and but for causation. Right. Then the second tectonic plate was the Roberts, Kavanaugh, Barrett plate. That's much more what you were just saying. That, um, look, the Carter-Baker Commission recommended this. A lot of other yeah. states have it. I don't quite know what the test is, but like this ain't even a close call, guys. Um. I think that they could be more in my undue burden camp. Uh, yeah, and maybe not even I get to section two. Okay. And then you have Breyer, Kagan, Sotomayor. Now, this is the tectonic plate that I think will have some shifts on it for this case. Sotomayor thinks, appeared to really, really think that these laws themselves uh, violate section two. Okay. I think that's weird. Um, Kagan. And Breyer, I Breyer in particular, did not seem to think that these violated Section 2 whatsoever. Kagan, it was a little less clear, but I think she was more probing at what a test could be where these might be okay, but things like this that were a little closer to the line might not be. And she certainly wants to keep Section 2 alive, well, robust, um, and I, I think she's getting to more of the totality of the circumstances test there. And, and her and Breyer made totality of the circumstances. it. So you could end up, I think, 8-1 on the merits with uh, a majority opinion written by, you know, Roberts or Kavanaugh, and then two concurring opinions or concurring in part, dissenting in part, by the tectonic plate on the right, the Alito, Robert, uh, Alito, Thomas, Gorsuch, and the tectonic plate on the left, Breyer and Kagan in this case. That's my prediction. I'm going to be very interested to see how this all shakes out because I'm super intrigued by our early, very early, but with, with some foundation 333 court diagnosis here. Um, one thing before we move on, because we don't have perfect overlap in listeners between advisory opinions and the Dispatch podcast, we talked a lot about this voting issue from a political standpoint in the Dispatch podcast. What are the actual political effects of these changes? And you made a point that I thought was really useful and, and important. And that is, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but my summary of your point, Sarah, is that, and it's something you've already alluded to previously, is that you might think if you're a sort of Republican legislator, you know, rubbing your hands together going, ha, 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 I figured out the legal way to kind of choke off my opponent's support. And this is the way in which we're going to not have a repeat of 2020. In reality, you've been chiseling at the edges, but you've also been really inflaming your opposition. And so what you're doing is you're sort of saying you're broadcasting to a whole segment of the population that we're doing everything we can legally to try to limit your access to the polls. And the other side says, oh, yeah, 
you're thinking about limiting our access to the polls, we'll, we'll show, it doesn't matter where we are, it doesn't matter how far we have to go, we're going to get there. And I think that there's actually some evidence that when people feel like their voting rights are under attack, they will, they will freaking get out there and vote. And so a lot of this actually has a reverse impact. As well they should, by the way. I kind of like it. You know, like maybe you don't think that it matters who you vote for because the choices aren't that different. And then when someone's like, no, the choices are really different because they don't even want you to vote. You're like, well, then the choices must be pretty different. I guess I'll go vote. Uh, Two other points on that. One, uh, Republicans in the past were trying, were saying that what they were doing was trying to limit ineligible voters. That's not what this is anymore. And I think if you look at the Georgia restrictions and even at these Arizona ones, we're talking about eligible voters who showed up at the wrong precinct or eligible voters potentially who just gave their ballot to someone else to turn in. Uh, So there is a shift there that I think is worth noting. Two, um, Republicans should be perhaps a little more wary of who they think their their partisanshiply trying to prevent from voting (laughs) because today's blue-collar Democrat may be tomorrow's populist Republican, and it's now harder for them to vote. So one wonders in 10 years whether Republicans may rue some of these laws when they were in control of 61% of the state legislatures and had um, quite a bit of freedom to pass some of these laws. This is not the last Voting Rights Act case that we'll see during our advisory opinions lifetime. Uh, Pennsylvania and Georgia have been proposing stuff. I know Florida. Anyway, there's more to come. There, the voting ID cases appear to have died down finally, but this is now the next, the next frontier in the Voting Rights Act. And right, we'll, exactly, we'll see how it turns out. Yep, yeah, and I'm. It's going to be very intriguing. And but I think again, I want to emphasize something you said. This is not a voting a voting ID law is designed to ensure that people who are not eligible to vote do not cast a ballot. Some of these laws, for example, particularly the precinct law, is a way to make sure that somebody who is eligible to vote does not get their ballot counted. Yeah. And that's that's a different deal. It's kind of weird. They are arguing that there is like a burden on the state to have to like count those ballots differently. Uh, Kind of. You know, I don't want to get into like full operative mode here, but like, there's plenty that, you know, how we handle provisional ballots is pretty well done. And no, it's not some huge burden on the state. Uh, I guess if there were some enormous influx of provisional ballots, maybe. But in this case, I believe there were 4,000 out of precinct ballots cast on election day. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. And at least in not Texas... That's- and and I think here when I vote in Virginia, but in Texas for sure, early voting, you don't vote in precinct. So they find your ballot for you and hand you your correct precinct ballot. So we know they're capable of doing this. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this is not beyond the capabilities of the state. All right. Well, that was a lot. Oh, but so much fun. I mean, you know, you guys just, I love, I love these oral arguments. Yada, yada, love them. And one last question. Court watcher, Sarah. I'm expecting the ACA decision. I know. I was waiting for it today. I thought maybe that's why the site crashed, but it's not. We did have Justice Barrett's first majority opinion, which 
feels like we're reaching for things to be excited about. So I just wasn't excited about it. Um, <laughs> it was seven two. Congrats to her. She got Kagan. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I would say most of the time when you've got a seven to two, you've got Kagan. Uh, yes, I think that's true. Although this one could be interesting, the Voting Rights Act one, because it's possible that Breyer actually is the one, the seventh, and Kagan is the eighth. Unclear. By the way, okay, this uh, we're already going too long, but this we're just going to put a pin in this. One of the comments that I constantly get from people is that progressives are never disappointed with their justices and conservatives are always disappointed with theirs. And I, what I question is whether or not now, whether somebody's subjective level of disappointment, okay, we can deal with that. But our progressive justices as doctrinaire or are our progressive justices more doctrinaire as a matter of fact on key kinds of culture war type cases than conservative justices. That could be an interesting advisory opinions. And so it shall be. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, something to look forward to y'all. And thank you as always for listening. Please go rate us, please subscribe, and please check out thedispatch.com. And we will talk to you on Monday. <laughs>